here today. It's a new year. A new year is a good time for a new study in a new book of Scripture. And we're going to be in a new book for a while. I'm not exactly sure how long it's going to take us. A while, anyway. Through the book of Hebrews. And as you make your way there, I want you to just imagine... Maybe for some of you this won't be hard, but just imagine that you're a Christian in a hard place. America is a pretty easy place, but there are hard places to be a Christian. Imagine that you'd been run out of town 15 years ago because the king didn't like you or your ethnic group or your people. You lost your business, most likely your home, and you had to sacrifice many of your possessions as a result. Later on, that king died and you were able to come back home, but just about the time when things were back to normal, a fire broke out across the city and consumed most of it. And the rumors are that the current king set that fire himself as part of his mad dreams of rebuilding the city in his own image. But to deflect the charges, he blames the Christians who are now being rounded up and imprisoned and killed in a variety of gruesome ways because Christians are not only an unpopular minority, they also refuse to bow down to the king and their religion is therefore declared illegal. You're running out of options, and you hope that perhaps soon you'll, uh, you'll escape, but more likely, the result will be that you'll be rounded up for your turn in the arena, unarmed versus the lions. But you've got one more play. Since you're ethnically Jewish and Judaism is a legal religion, you could simply go back to that and escape all this persecution and death, all it would take, the only thing you have to do, is to renounce for a while at least your faith in Christ and go back to the synagogue. Imagine that's your situation. Would you do it? Would you say, well, if those are the choices, I'll go to the lions? Or would you say, if those are the choices, I'll go to the synagogue? What would you do? Well, what if it was not just you? But what if it was you and your spouse? What if it was you and your children? That situation is precisely the situation that the book of Hebrews is written to address. And what I've described to you is a historical outline of the details underlying this letter. Uh, neither the author nor the recipients of Hebrews are named, most likely because in a situation of persecution, you don't go out of your way to identify all of the people who are involved in a group that is illegal. The 
Persecution makes communication in a direct way dangerous. But this little group of Jewish Christians that received this letter have suffered persecution once before. In about A.D. 49, under the emperor Claudius, he issued an edict that everybody who was Jewish, including everybody who was Christian Jew, was expelled from Rome, and they lost their livelihoods and their homes. Now it's about 15 years later, and the emperor is now a man named Nero. And he is seizing property and and homes and businesses, and also putting Christians to death in a variety of creative ways. He is feeding some of them to the lions. He is dipping the rest of them in pitch and lighting them on fire at garden parties. And they are under the gun. And a lot of them have thought, you know, Judaism is a legal religion. I was raised Jewish. My family all felt funny about me ever since I became a Christian. Maybe I'll just go back to Judaism and escape all this. And some of you may be thinking, well, I don't know what this has to say to me. You know, after all, I'm not Jewish, and we aren't under that kind of persecution. And that's true. But here's what I know for sure. That persecution is always preceded. What always comes before it is a long period of marginalization. When a group that was formerly tolerated or even popular is slowly but surely moved to the boundaries of society and then pushed beyond them, beyond the boundaries of what is socially acceptable. And when marginalization comes to a religious group, what comes with it is an increasing amount of pressure by the wider society to conform both the content and the practice of that faith to make it more socially acceptable. And we Christians here in America are a long way from being a persecuted minority like these people to whom Hebrews is written. But I would say that marginalization has already begun. That we are slowly but surely being pressured by our society to conform both the content and the practices of our faith to fit the surrounding ethos of the culture. And you and I are very soon going to have some choices to make. In fact, those choices are already on us. Whether we're going to conform and fit into the culture, or whether we're going to continue to stick out. And the book of Hebrews has a lot to say about this. About whether or not you're going to conform and let, the, let the, the, the world around us push us into its mold, or whether we're going to continue to stand out and to proclaim the gospel, though it becomes difficult and unpopular to do so. So if you've got your Bible open, I think Hebrews has a lot to say to us. It has a lot for us to know 
It has a lot for us to understand and a lot for us to worship God as a result of and to uh, give strength to our faith in a time when it's not maybe as easy as it used to have been. So let's read here. I just want to look at four verses. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sin, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs." You know, the writer of Hebrews doesn't necessarily begin where you would expect. He doesn't start off by talking about how important it is that these Christians don't walk away from Christianity. He doesn't talk about how you're under persecution and you need to, here's how you need to deal with that. He doesn't get into that right away. Instead, he begins by talking about Jesus and about how Jesus is superior to all of God's other forms of revelation that have come down to us to remind us that God supremely speaks to us through His Son. In the past, when God spoke, it was always a mediated form of communication. You know, God would send an angel, and and the angel would say to someone, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Or he would speak to the, through the prophet, and you would get sometimes really weird things, right? Like Ezekiel had to lay on one, one side of his body for like three years. You know, he built a little clay model um, of the city of Jerusalem, and then he you know, besieged it, you know, built siege ramps around it and so forth. He shaved off, part of his, you know, shaved off his beard, and he took a few little hairs and tucked them in his coat. That was the remnant that was going to survive. And then he burned a bunch of it with the fire, and then he chopped up some of it with a sword. It was really strange, right? You had Jonah who gets swallowed by the great fish. You know, scripture doesn't say it was a whale. People say it was a whale. But the Scripture says it was just a great fish, a sea creature. Swallowed Jonah. Okay, when the, all those gastric juices have been working on you for a few days... He would have been stark white <laughs> when he walked into his, walked into into Nineveh there at the capital of Assyria. Would have looked all white and pruny. You know, he would have had a great testimony. Forty days and Nineveh would be destroyed, right? Um, and if you don't believe me, let me tell you about it. I know what it's like to go to go and face down death, eyeball to eyeball, right? Uh, or you would have uh, you would have Elijah on Mount Carmel, and he called down fire from heaven that consumed not only the sacrifice and the the altar, but the water that was in the ditch around the sacrifice. Everything was just vaporized and gone. And you and you had guys that had visions, and you had you know Abraham that had the vision of the smoking fire pot that represented God's presence walking between the pieces of the sacrifice, and you had. Uh, the smoke and the fire and the blaring of the trumpets on Mount Sinai, and people were terrified, you know. But it's always a mediated form of communication. That, that you're getting communication from God through some other mediator. 
You're getting it through a prophet or through a vision or through an angel. You're getting it through some other means. But in the last days, and since the days of the coming of Christ, we are in, according to the Scriptures, the last days. When God wanted to speak, how did He speak? He showed up in the presence of the person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Sometimes God's speech in the past came through a sermon or a song or a poem. But now when God wants to make His final pronouncement, He comes Himself in the flesh. He didn't speak to us through a prophet, but through His own Son. And Jesus Christ, according to the Scriptures, is the supreme revelation of who God is and what He is like. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Because according to the Scriptures, God is exactly like And in addition to speaking to us supremely through the Son, we find out in verses 2 and 3 that the Son is fully God and that He is the supreme Savior. Now, if you look with me at the second half of verse 2 here, you find out some amazing things. We find out that Jesus is not just the Son of God, but He is the heir of all things and the Creator of everything. Now, these are divine roles, things that only God uh, is and does. And the writer of Hebrews is using these titles and these roles to make it clear that Jesus is not like what Islam says Jesus is. Islam says that Jesus is just another one of the line of God's prophets going all the way back to Adam in the garden. But Hebrews says that Jesus is the Son of God and that He is the heir of God's creation and that He is the Creator, in fact, the direct Creator of all of God's creation. Uh, if you want to, you, you know, sometimes this, this Hebrews is, is a little more clear than Colossians. Colossians uses a different term to talk about Jesus having the right to everything that exists. This idea of heir. Uh, Colossians uses the term that he is the firstborn over all creation. And the idea is not that Jesus comes into existence first, because according to the scripture, there was never a time when the Son of God did not exist, but that he has the rights to everything like the firstborn son in a family does. In that culture, if you are the firstborn son, you have the right to everything that belongs to the Father. And that's what Hebrews is saying when it says that He is the heir of all creation. That everything in the universe belongs to the Son. And everything in the universe was made by the Son, Jesus Christ. Now just put this in perspective for just a minute, okay? You know that between us and the sun, there are 93 million miles. I looked this up the other day. We were having a discussion about how, how fast light travels from here to the sun. It's about eight minutes. 
between here and the sun, 93 million miles between us and the sun. Did you know that there are a hundred thousand million stars in our galaxy? Roughly. And that there are also about a hundred thousand million galaxies in the, in the universe. And that they are all expanding all the time. And the universe is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And that each galaxy is at the moment approximately 100,000 light years across. A light year is 186,000 miles per second times 365 days times 100,000 is how big our galaxy is. And there are 100,000 million galaxies in the universe. And that every star and asteroid and planet and black hole and quark and atom and molecule and creature within that is created by and possessed by the Son of the living God. And that that is the God who came to reveal himself to us. This is meant, these titles and these roles are meant to make us look at our Savior and go, whoa. Whoa. This is not some cut-rate bargain basement deity that we serve. Jesus is not on the blue light special anywhere. Okay? This is the Son of God, the heir of creation, the maker of all things, visible and invisible. All things are created by Him and for Him. And in addition to being the heir and creator of the universe, we also find out that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And sometimes I think we struggle to think clearly about Jesus' deity, but these terms make it more clear to us. Uh, some Bibles use the term reflection, which is not bad, it's just not sufficient. Uh, the term radiance is better because it more clearly explains what, something about Jesus' glory and deity that is, that is deep and true. See, the moon re, it reflects the radiance of the sun. It doesn't have any light of its own. Jesus' glory as God is not like that. It's like the sun, which out of its own substance has a glow and gives off light uh, because of its own because of the nature of that of that uh, creation that it possesses. Right, the sun has radiance that gives light to our entire solar system. In fact, you can see it anywhere in our galaxy. You can see the light of our sun. It has a radiance of its own that comes from the nature of the thing itself. And what Hebrews is saying about Jesus is that He is the radiance of the glory, not of the Son, but of God. 
that all of the glory of God is revealed in the nature of Jesus Christ, and that He is the exact imprint of the nature of God. And the word imprint there has to do with coins. If you ever been to a mint or seen coins made, what you know is that they have these big sheets of metal, and then they have a big die cutter. It has two sides to it. And it comes down under enormous pressure, whoom, and stamps out that coin. And what happens is, is that the coin, uh, because of the amount of pressure that is brought to bear on it, bears the imprint of the die. So that the image on the front is of Washington or Eisenhower or Jefferson or Lincoln or whoever, right? So that you can see what Lincoln looks like because of the imprint that has been left by the die. And what Hebrews is saying is that Jesus is like that. That to look at Him is to see exactly what God is like. That in other words, there's not a distinction between the nature of God and the nature of Jesus Christ. That, that Jesus Christ is fully and completely God. And He possesses every attribute of deity. That there is no aspect of God's nature which Jesus does not also possess. Now that's some high theology, and if you think about it for a while, it messes with your head. Alright? But the reality is that Jesus Christ is fully and completely and in every respect God. He is not simply some supersized you know, version of a, of a human being. He is fully human, but He is fully and completely God. He is God in the flesh. Now, all, in addition to that, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. I find this fascinating. Scientists right now are building these giant particle accelerators. You know, they built one in Switzerland, and there was debate as after they turned it on, you know, are we going to blow up the world when we do this? Okay, thankfully they didn't. Um, but they build these big particle accelerators, and they shoot these atoms all around in these things. And one of the questions that they're trying to answer is what holds the universe together? How come your atoms and molecules and so forth don't just fly apart? Because there are forces within your body at the cellular level and at the atomic level that would seem to repel the various things within your body and, and, and all, all the rest of creation as well that would seem to cause all of that stuff to fly apart rather than to hold together. And science has actually no really good answer for why that doesn't happen. But Hebrews answers that question. It says that the universe holds together by the word of His power. Why does the universe continue existing as it does? Because Jesus Christ upholds it and binds it all together by His power. 
powerful word. And one day that will stop happening, by the way. Scripture tells us that. Peter tells us that one day the elements will melt with intense heat and the heavens and earth will disappear with a roar. That everything will just and be gone. And that Jesus will make the world anew, be a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. But everything that exists is held together by the word of Jesus' power. It's an amazing thing. Here's number five in the list of divine attributes. Jesus is also the fully sufficient and supreme Savior. He didn't just make us. He doesn't just rule over us and sustain us as the fully divine heir and creator and Lord of the universe. He also saves and forgives. How did he do that? By dying to make purification for sins. Sin always requires the death penalty. It can't be forgiven without sacrifice according to God's own law. And yet God knew that we could not pay that penalty without remaining eternally separated from Him. And so God sent the Son to be the Savior. And His sacrifice fully covered sin for all people for all time. This is a big theme, by the way, in Hebrews. You need to look for it, especially chapter 9 and 10. Going to spend a lot of time on Jesus' fully sufficient sacrifice for sin. That there is one sacrifice by one Savior for all sin, for all people, for all time. How do we know that Jesus' sacrifice was fully sufficient? Because the scripture says right here, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is highly significant. You know, those of you who went through Exodus with me, you remember that we went through all of the furniture in the tabernacle and we learned about all of how that was made and why it was made and all of that. One thing that's missing from the tabernacle that you would think would be there, especially when you've got a table is you don't have chairs. There's not a chair, there's not a stick of anything to sit down on anywhere in the whole thing. And it's for the very simple reason that part of the point of the tabernacle was to teach people that what they were doing in the sacrificial system was not sufficient to totally cover over their sin, that it was waiting for a, for a future day when a Savior would come who would offer final sacrifice for sin. But until then, the work of the priest was never done, and so they could never sit and rest. But Jesus, having offered purification for sin according to Hebrews, sat down. Why? Because His work of purification for sin is done. That's why we, in in our church here, we have a cross which does not have Jesus still on it. Because Jesus' work on the cross is finished. Purification for sin has been, in the past, completed made, done. And now He reigns at the Father's side for eternity. 
And as a result of all Jesus' roles and titles and accomplishments, we also know that he reigns supreme over everything. He's sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is superior to the angels. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time in verse 4 because we're actually going to grab verse 4 and go through the end of uh, chapter 1 next week when it talks about how Christ is superior to the angels. But the writer of Hebrews is mentioning angels here for a couple of reasons. Number one, because angels were a big deal in Judaism. Uh, Jews spent a lot of time in those days talking about the various names and powers and roles of the angels, and they held that Moses received the law on Mount Sinai from an angel. But Hebrews is saying, but Jesus is far greater than the angels. Jehovah's Witnesses today hold that Jesus is a, is a created being. He's an angel. He's the highest of the angelic realm. Hebrews says, no. Jesus is far superior to even the highest of the angels. He is not a creature like they are. He is not less than them like Moses Uh, and the other prophets to whom the angels spoke. But he is, in fact, the Lord and ruler of the angel armies of heaven. He rules over them. Now, all of these great truths are, are great to learn and to know and understand, but we also need to understand their implications and their application to us. Because the point of what we learn is not simply that we be smarter sinners. Amen? The goal of, of, of Bible study is not information, but transformation. So I want to flesh out just a few things. That since Jesus Christ is the supreme God and Savior, number one, I can completely rely on His Word. I can completely rely on His Word. Before Jesus came, you might have wondered justifiably if maybe the prophets garbled what they heard from God. Are you sure about that, Moses? I mean, really, I mean, you know, that seems a little strange. I mean, that Ezekiel guy, I mean, he was weird, okay? I mean, he was an odd duck. You know, Isaiah walked around naked for three years. I mean, that's weird, okay? Are you sure you're hearing from God on this? Really? But when Jesus came, we got proof that the prophetic word was true in the person of Jesus. Because Jesus not only confirmed what the prophets said was true, he also fulfilled everything that they spoke about him. And so you have assurance when you read your Bible that since Jesus confirmed and fulfilled it, that I can completely trust it too. Because Jesus is the God who spoke the word to the prophet. And it also means that I can joyfully obey God's commands. Since Jesus is the supreme God and Savior, I have been given a pathway to follow that leads me closer and closer to Him. I can live a life that rejects sin and conforms to Christ and is joyful rather than dutiful because of the nature of the God and Savior that I serve. You see, you know, if you look at a religion like Islam, 
you know, they talk about, in Islam, they talk about uh, how Allah is merciful this, and Allah is patient that, and whatever. But here's reality. When you die, you don't know for sure whether Allah is going to whack you and send you to hell, or whether you're going to get into paradise or not. Only way to know for sure is to die in jihad, which is why that's become popular. All right? Because you really don't know if God loves you or doesn't. And you live in fear of what Allah might do to you and yours. But in Christianity, we have the Son of God sent to us to be the Savior, to die in our place for our sins, and to carry us to glory. Do you know why and what motivates all of that? Love. Love. And so we then don't need to cower in fear before the God who loves us. We can serve Him with joy because He is a loving God who saves. And we can love Him in return. It means that I can confidently receive His forgiveness. One of the issues that we struggle with as people, certainly one of the issues that I struggle with as a human being, is receiving forgiveness. You know, I can, I can if I think about it very long, look back over the wreckage of my past bad decisions in life, I can get myself a pretty big bag of guilt that I want to sling over my shoulders. And go, whoo, well, I was an idiot then. An idiot yesterday. This morning. You know, I mean, I can get a whole bunch of stuff going, you know. And I can have guilt and shame and, and, and just agony weigh me down over that stuff. But the Scripture says, and I need to believe the Scriptures here, Jesus, having made purification for sin, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The payment has been made, and I don't need to try to feel bad enough to get my own atonement working. My sin is forgiven. I don't have to try to make up for all of, the, all of the evil that I have done, hoping one day somehow that I will feel right before God. Jesus has made me right before God, and there is one purification for sin that God accepts, and that is the blood of the Son, and that has already been offered on my behalf. I simply need to confidently receive the forgiveness I have already been given. Amen? And all of that means that I can exuberantly worship Him. The God of the universe has come to save and forgive and to sustain and to heal, and I have forgiveness. Amen? I have an infallible guide for life. I have a complete revelation of God, not just in a book, but in a person. 
who loves me and gave himself for me. And so I have, as we sang this morning, at least 10,000 reasons, amen, to praise God. At least 10,000 reasons to praise God because I have a God who loves me and makes himself known to me and forgives me despite all of the mess I've gotten myself into time after time after time. This God loves me, and therefore I can worship Him both now and forevermore. So let's stand and let's pray, and then let's worship God together some more. God, our Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that your word would help us to be incredibly impressed with Jesus, the heir and creator of all things, visible and invisible, the one who saves and forgives and holds the universe together by the majesty of his power. A word. Who is seated now at your right hand, where he reigns over all things, even the angels. Father, help us to be impressed with his power and amazed by his grace. Help us to enjoy our relationship with you that we receive through faith in him. And help us, Father, by your Holy Spirit to declare your praise here this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.